Hey, Rye, thanks for uh, sitting down with me today on the Chillinois podcast. Thanks a lot, Cole. Great to be on. Please introduce yourself to the audience of the Chillinois podcast. Um, I'm Rye Pritchard. I, uh, I'm probably best known for uh, being a co-host on the show on Viceland Bong uh, Appetit, uh, which is where we you know, did a series of dinners with, with very cool chefs and, and did a lot of infusion and, and work with cannabis there. Um, I, I've been in the industry for over 10 years now at this point, um, uh, starting in the early days in Colorado. Um, and so I've, I've kind of been through <laughs> yeah, uh, quite, quite a bit during that time, uh, get, getting to this point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, currently I work uh, with Acreage Holdings and um, specifically uh, Superflux, which is one of uh, one of our brands. Okay. Superflux. I was going to ask if you could remind folks, uh, you know, what, what products the Acreage offers in Illinois Superflux. Is that the only one? I don't mean to pop quiz you. Um, that's, uh, that's the kind of focus right now. Um, our, our other brand, uh, the botanist will be, uh, making a, a stronger appearance there, but it, it is currently in the market, but we're going to be releasing some new products under botanist coming soon. Gotcha. So, I mean, I know you've, you just mentioned it and I want to ask you about some of your time in Colorado and stuff and the things you've seen, you've obviously seen the evolution of this industry. Um, but before I get into that stuff, can I just ask you, um, why are you, why are you with Superflux? Well, um, you know, part of, part of the story, I guess, um, you know, Superflux is a concentrate focused brand. Um, it's something, you know, that's kind of my particular area of cannabis that I really love the most. That's what I consume most on a daily basis is, is concentrates and specifically live resin concentrates. So, um, you know, I, I think I've taken a lot of ownership over, over what Superflux is for that reason. Um, so, you know, it, it's something that I, I really believe in. I really think that, you know, these extraction methods and these products, um, I mean, they, they change my life. And I know that a lot of people across the country haven't experienced, you know, sort of the right live resin or, or maybe they haven't experienced it all, or maybe they've never done a dab or maybe, you know, uh, they consume a vape pen and they don't think about it as a concentrate. Um, I think there's a lot of education left to do with that, that side of the industry and, and a lot of, you know, quality improvement that can happen across the country um, as these other markets start coming on. So it's, it, you know, we're, we're super happy to be in Illinois. We think that, you know, Illinois, compared to a lot of other states is more of an oil centric state um, than, than maybe some others that are, that are very heavily reliant on flour. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's important to kind of, you know, put our flag in the ground um, from a quality perspective. And, and that's something that I'm really kind of taking, you know, as a personal challenge, as a part of, of Superflux is trying to make sure that we're really putting out, you know, what we believe in. Gotcha. And you kind of answered it by saying why you're with Superflux, I feel like, but so forgive me if, if you feel like you may be restating something, but how would you pitch Superflux? What is Superflux in Illinois? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, Superflux is, is a live resin focused company. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, dabbable concentrates and a variety of textures. Of course, we also have a live resin vape pen that we're very proud of. Um, we, we do our process maybe a little bit differently than some of the other um, operators, uh, not just in Illinois, but everywhere, um, you know, where we, we really, really try to focus on minimizing that degradation um, during the processes um, in order to get the oil from an oil that could crystallize or could have a whole bunch of issues, to, you know, to something that's really repeatable and, and reliable in a vape pen. So, the, you know, I, I think with us, we, you know, as a company, we really focus on starting from seed. 
We focus on doing a lot of intensive selection to get to those best plants. Um, you know, with our Illinois facility, for example, we've been selecting plants for well over a year, um, trying to get to the absolute best ones, um, both for, you know, for flower production for all of our brands, but also specifically for live resin. So, um, you know, the vast majority of our catalog is stuff that, you know, I have a personal history with going back almost 10 years, some of them. Um, and, and the vast majority of it is stuff that we've, you know, created completely in-house. Um, and the, the rest of it is stuff that some of our key partners, like, you know, Canarado and so, some of the, you know, the other friends that we have in the industry um, that are breeders uh, have done. So, you know, we're really proud of our strain list. We think it's, it's unique in a lot of ways to Illinois um, and across the country. And, you know, we think that our processes are, you know, maybe one step above um, where, where some of the other operators are, because we, we really are focused on the quality as opposed to, you know, macro scale. Um, and, you know, going back to my early days in Colorado, you know, being a part of the live resin process kind of from the start, um, I'm trying to bring a lot of that ethos and, you know, uh, the underpinnings of that, you know, to, to this scaling up that we're doing. So we're, we're trying to kind of bring, you know, the original live resin uh, to the people. So. Very cool. I want to talk about that and uh, maybe the differences and concentrates here in a little bit. And I think live the con, con, the conversation rather about um, live resin fits right into that. Um, yeah, I, I thought that maybe that is is why you were with Superflux. I mean, as a viewer of Bong Appetit, first of all, I had to kind of settle down a little bit before the interview because it's just so cool to be talking to you. Um, so thank you again for your time. Uh, but one of the things I picked up from the show is, uh, you know, that you felt concentrates go better with food and beverage better than anything really. Um, and so I figured that that's why you would join the ranks at, uh, super flux. So, um, you know, you kind of mentioned, uh, what super flux is doing. You've got to focus on, uh, concentrates, different types of concentrates. Um, and I, what do you feel makes uh, Superflux stand out? Is it your genetic selection, like you say? Is it uh, the consistency that you you say you're able to achieve through these different um, processes? What do you feel makes Superflux stand out as a a, a brand? Yeah, I, I think I think it's a combination of all the things that you know. The genetics obviously are are what kind of power the whole conversation. If you if you have you know not great plants or not unique plants or plants that don't have a lot of aroma or flavor, I mean your concentrate's only going to ever be so good. Um, at that point, you're just kind of popping out molecule. You know, it doesn't really uh, doesn't really grab connoisseurs. So um, so yeah, I mean we, we think our our strains and our selection process are really important. Um, and then you know, like I said, the the process we we really try to minimize degradation. We really try to um, you know, maintain that original profile from, from the extraction um, with, you know, especially in some states, like for example, Massachusetts, they actually have a zero PPM, uh, you know, butane limit. Um, so you have to be very, very uh, conscientious about that. And so we, you know, as a result of being in that state, for example, we've, we've adapted some of our processes where, you know, we're very consistently getting, getting that zero PPM everywhere um, and, and still you know, delivering the type of flavor, um, that, that we would want to. So we're kind of, you know, you, we sort of get our hand forced in, in certain areas to, to modify and adapt processes, but we keep the, you know, the underpinnings and the reason that we really 
started that process in the first place intact so that we're able to keep the quality consistent while addressing some of these other things. So, um, you know, like we're, you know, we're very familiar with, with a lot of the other operators in, uh, in Illinois and their processes. Um, you know, some members of, of, you know, our, our personal, you know, pre, pre, uh, super flux, you know, some, some members of our team are, are at those places and we, we know very, very well what they're doing. So I think, you know, we can speak with a little bit of authority that, you know, our processes are, different than some of those big names that shall not be named. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, what do you like, what are you guys doing right now? And what I mean by that is that, uh, I mean, you kind of answered that in a multitude of ways, but I feel like it's like a, what I'm seeing is a rollout of your product and brand. Would that be fair to say um, like you guys are kind of scaling up? what's going on right now? Yeah, hundred um, percent. I, I think, you know, we, we entered the Illinois market um, a little bit later than some of the other, uh, you know, MSO larger type operators. Um, and so it's something that, you know, we've been kind of building up to, you know, playing catch up a little bit to some extent, but I also think it gave us a unique opportunity to really, you know, be more of a craft level operation, frankly, and, and have a greater sense of control um, with what we're producing. So, so yeah, we are, we are doing a ramping up process. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we're still doing final selections on some of the plants that we started from seed, you know, over a year ago, um, trying to make sure that we really have the right plants. Um, so you, you'll see a continued evolution of the brand and, um, and not only more products, but a wider variety of products coming out in the future. Um, and, you know, we're looking at, at things beyond just concentrate as well, like infused, infused pre-roll, um, and, and things like that. So the, the, you know, we're looking at, at new products, but we're really going to be focused on, on, yeah, ramping up scale and availability so we can make sure we're in as many stores as we can. Um, so people can try it and let us know what they think. Gotcha. Yeah. I was going to ask you about new products. Uh, so maybe new pre-roll infused pre-rolls you say? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that, um, you know, I, I really like personally, um, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, in, in like uh, Bong Appetit and stuff like that. I mean, I, I think the biggest role of concentrates is not even necessarily to increase potency in products. It's to like make the overall experience better, um, primarily the flavor. I mean, if you if you're able to infuse, uh, you know, nice, tasty flour with something that has a lot more flavor or, you know, whether it's the same flavor, like, you know, same strain infusion or you bring a different flavor into the party, um, I think that's a a really interesting product and it's and you know for me as as just a consumer I, I really appreciate those um it it's it, it's a way to really elevate the pre-roll and make you feel like you have you're having more of a special experience with it um and so i i, I think that's part of it and then also you know 40 percent thc or so <laughs> when it's finally formulated so um those that are looking yeah. for a head change definitely get that as well um but yeah, so I mean, that's that's primary. I mean, Superflux is, is a very focused brand. I mean, we're really trying to stick in the, in the concentrates realm. Um, you know, one thing that we've heard a lot of feedback on is, um, you know, trying to develop some some non-solvent products. And, um, you know, that's that's not my personal area of expertise. I'm much more of, of a, uh, a BHO guy. But, um, you know, I, I have, you know, a lot of friends across the industry that are very high level at that. And it's certainly something that we're exploring coming up in the future, um, specifically for the Illinois market. So, um, I, I don't, I'm not making a, making an announcement that's happening for sure, but we're, we, we've heard, you know, we've heard the feedback and we know that, you know, from California and other places, um, the ability to make non-solvent at scale is now there, uh, where previously it was like, uh, how many bubble bags do we need to buy? And what, you know, and it, it, it became like, uh, it, it was a very hard process to scale at first. Um, you know, again, going back to like the early days in Colorado, um, 
So we're, we're, we're going to look into that and, um, you know, uh, non-solvent vape pens and all, all that sort of thing that those are all on the table. Cool. Um, and I realize that the answer that you give me today may be different, uh, than tomorrow. And that's a good thing, I think, but where can people currently find, uh, what's your best bet of trying to find some super flux? Where would you go? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, ch- check the menu at your favorite dispensary. I mean, we're, we're in, uh, over 70 stores in Illinois currently. Um, and you know, again, we, we are a smaller operation, so, you know, sometimes we're sold out at places and, and then we get restocked. So, um, just keep an eye on it. Uh, I, I know offhand, you know, we work with Zenleaf, we work with Sunnyside, we work, uh, you know, with a variety of, of, you know, the larger retail groups. Um, so, you know, keep an eye, check it out. And on our website, we have a, a store finder as well that, that shows basically, you know, where we've sent orders to. And then I just suggest going on there and looking at their live menu to make sure that, you know, you're not uh, wasting a trip down if they're sold out. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, so, you know, I want to talk about the differences in concentrates because you mentioned non-solvents and BHO and stuff. Um, but Actually, yeah. Why don't we just get into that? Um, can you give us a like a, a quick rundown of? Uh, well, first of all, before you get a rundown, maybe we could start with why you prefer BHO. Um, I just want to. I'm just curious. Yeah, it's um, you know it, it's obviously a, a hot topic on a lot of the you know extraction forums and places like Reddit um, of you know what what the best form of concentrate is. Um, I, I'm not here to necessarily uh, say that one thing is better than the other. Um, for my personal preference and with the history that I have with the product, um, I've all the best batches of concentrate I've ever consumed have been live resin. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, I have, again, I have friends that do super high level non-solvent work. Um, I, I've tried a lot of the best stuff around. Um, I, I think that as an extraction process, you, you're capable of getting a cleaner, deeper flavor, you know, more beautiful product, arguably, um, using, using BHO, uh, as an extraction process. And that, that's simply because butane is a very, very selective solvent. Um, and when I say selective, what that means is when you run it over the material, you're only taking the things that you want and you're leaving behind literally everything else. And butane gets more and more selective as it's cold. So the colder that you do that extraction, I mean, that's really the whole reason for live resin, the colder you're able to do that extraction, Ah. the more selective it is so that you're literally just getting cannabinoids, uh, terpenoids, flavonoids, phenols, esters, um, the things that you really want that make the product what it is, and you're leaving behind chlorophyll, trichome casings and shells, you know, all that stuff that normally would be a part of the mix in a non-solvent product. Um, and, and, and also it, you know, in my experience, it lasts and holds up better. Like I've had batches of live resin that were extracted, you know, almost two years ago that still have a lot of aroma and flavor. Um, whereas I feel like with a lot of the rosin, uh, products, especially, um, if you get it in that sort of shattery kind of rosin form, it like, chuds up and turns to butter. And the moment that that happens, it smells absolutely amazing. But then right after that, it starts to really just fall through the floor, um, kind of no matter how you store it. I, I think cold storage and some of that has helped. But, um, you know, if I'm if I'm picking, you know, if I have a plant in a room that I'm like, this is the one, I, I would run it as live resin. <laughs> and, and, you know, the other thing that I, I think is important is as a company, right? Um, certain plants um, do not extract very well using non-solvent. 
Um, whereas if you, you know, like we had a variety called Lemon G in, in the early Colorado days, which has now gone to a bunch of different places, but it's an Ohio strain originally. But um, that one in particular, like if you ran that as water hash, which is all we were doing back in the day, you would get almost no yield. <laughs> the, the quality was fine, but you would get almost no yield because the trichomes are not the shape that is conducive to that type of extraction. Whereas we run it with BHO, you know, we get a, a four plus percent final yield from fresh frozen, which is great. And the oil is mind blowing, right? And so with BHO, you're able to extract a wider range of plants and get a better product overall. With non-solvent, I think a lot of the work really falls on the breeders and the people doing the selecting to find those plants that will give you an acceptable yield. So it's a longer road to get to get there. Um, but I know, you know, for example, some of the people uh, in, in Colorado, they have they now have you know three or four years worth of breeding and selection where they say this roster of twelve strains always yields huge and always works in all these textures and works very well with non-solvent. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that, that's like a super long answer to say, like, you know, you can get to the top of the mountain, no matter how you extract. Um, but there's a different amount of work and different considerations to get there. Um, and and I, I really do think that, um, you know, and I've talked about this with aroma people with like natural perfumist with a, a variety of different industries. Um, the selectivity of, of pure and butane is pretty special, um, especially when it's frozen. And it's something that not a lot of other, in other industries are doing. Uh, cannabis kind of led the way with that. Very interesting. So I think that leads, uh, thank you for answering that question. I think that leads into, it's almost like we take a step back. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the different types of concentrate and maybe let's start with live resin. Um, you know, you, you pointed out some distinct differences, but why don't we start with live resin and then we can maybe move to uh, other other types, um, including different complexions. Yeah. So, um, you know, live resin, um, a lot of people sort of boil it down to like, oh, you're extracting fresh frozen plant material. It's like, yes and no. Um, I mean, live resin is a product and a process. Um, when when the, the, the process was first started back in, in 2013, um, there were people that were doing fresh frozen butane where they, you know, they were freezing the material and they were keeping their tubes cold and doing all that. But again, it was tubes. It was somebody squatting out in the backyard with a can of butane and that's not scalable. And we know that. Um, so, you know, nobody was claiming that this was the first time that's ever happened or anything like that. What, what we were claiming is we were the first ones to bring that to market and named it live resin and, and, and sold it in dispensaries for the first time at scale. And, and we're able to create a replicable process thanks to the closed loop extraction system that we were using at the time. So um, there wasn't other hardware that could be frozen capably and, and work safely and all of that stuff. And we were able to, you know, our, our good friend Giddy up at, at Emotech, um, that, that was one of the, the early machines that we were able to do this process on. So um, in a nutshell, live resin is, you know, fresh frozen plant material extracted very cold um, using N-butane. Um, I, I don't personally like propane in the mix. Um, there's a lot of people that are using gas blends. Um, that, that's, a, that's maybe a key difference in our process. But um, and, and so essentially what you're doing is you're taking that super cold solvent, washing it over frozen material, and then sending it through secondary processing steps to remove the solvent and get it into its final product form, which you know could be whipping to get it into a butter. Um, it could be crystallizing 
um, in solution to get to diamonds or sauce. Um, so that, that, that's kind of the long and short of it. Um, I think, you know, the, the transformative part about live resin is the fact that it's made from fresh frozen material. Um, when you do that, you not only get more terpenes and, and more things are intact, but you get different terpenes that actually would be completely gone and out of the mix by the time that flour is taken to a dried nug, right? Um, so some of the nuance that you smell in a live plant, which it, you know, anybody who's ever been in a grow room, like it's categorically different smelling a live plant than it is smelling, no matter how good people are at curing or drying or any of that, it's just a whole different ball game. So yeah, um, dude. Yeah, so, exactly. So, so that's what we were trying to capture. Right. I mean, um, and, and so I, I think that's the most important part about live resin is that it, it's, it's a view to what the plant was as it was living and most people across the world and country whatever don't have access to a grow room and they don't know what that smells like and so i think that's part of the education yeah. process is showing people like oh yeah the weed smells pretty good huh mm, how about this <laughs> you know and and I've, I've seen so many people just be like what like what, what even is that yeah because um, it's because it's so strong and so so amazing um so I, I think, you know, live resin really took a huge step forward from a lot of the cured concentrates, um, which was all that was available for, you know, thousands of years, largely um, in, in Afghanistan and other places, there is sort of like live sifting that happens, um, you know, the, the sort of myth that, you know, they would, they would half myth, half truth <laughs> that they would like send people out into the fields naked and, and, and get everything and scrape it off their bodies. I mean, that definitely happened. And so that arguably is like the first sort of live resin. Right. Um, and they would do that again because it was stickier. It was better. It was more pleasing to smoke, right. um, not because it was production worthy. <laughs> um, and so live resin kind of solved that problem of being able to take that magical experience of that living plant and make it something that could then be made at scale to, you know, millions of vape carts or, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, very cool. Very cool. Well, um, yeah. So you mentioned some of the different types of complexions. Is it just a matter of working with your final product to get that complexion? I mean, you mentioned whipping mm -hmm. to get a butter doing something else to get crit. Can you explain not only the differences, but I mean, some of them are kind of self-explanatory. A butter is kind of a buttery yeah. uh, consistency. A diamond is a diamond looking <laughs> consistency, but can you break it down and tell us how you get those complexions? Yeah. The, the, the textures are really interesting. And, and I know there's like regional variation uh, across the country about what different textures are called. There are some companies that sure. try to create their own nomenclature for like, Oh, these are diamonds and sauce. These are this and that, you know? Um, so I, I yeah. you know, be, being a part of the process from an early stage, we kind of tried to draw lines in the sand about what we call our textures. So um, in, in a general sense, I'll, I'll break it down. There's kind of like two parts, right? So um, one side of the house is, you know, whipped concentrates. So we get the oil out of the extractor. Um, you know, it still has solvent in it. Um, it's, it's basically a raw oil at that point or like a crude. Um, and so you just get that into a heated vessel and you just manually just whip it with a tool, right? Um, there's different ways to do this. There's stir sticks. There's, there's a whole bunch of different things that you could use, but generally all you're doing is whipping it together and making an emulsification, right? So it's the same thing as like an oil and vinegar salad dressing. Um, you're trying to get these two disparate things to stay together. So cannabinoids and terpenoids don't want to stay together in an oil form. That's why you see things yeah. like shatter start to 
nucleate and sugar up. They, they naturally want to be separate. So what you're doing with a butter process is you're forcing the action and whipping them together during that process. And that creates a, a consistent, homogenous, opaque texture um, that, as you mentioned, you know, a butter has more terpenes, a wax has less terpenes. That's really the only difference. Um, some people, in addition to the whipping, will use things like vacuum ovens. Um, so that's where you see like honeycomb. That's where you see crumble and some of these other things. They'll often get it to like a workable state and then they'll put it in the oven and let it finish. Um, and part of that is to, you know, make 100% sure that there's no butane in it, like stuff like that. But for me, uh, involving the ovens is unnecessary in that process. And it results in a drier, less palatable whipped product. So yeah, I, I really, you know, and, and it's a little bit of an art. I mean, I remember back in the Colorado days, we would have, you know, one or two guys in the lab who really, really, really knew what they were doing with the whipping. And they were the only ones that ever touched it because it's, it's more of an art form than it is a science because you're having to look at the oil. You're having to recognize the nuances and different strains and finding the right time to whip the right temperature and the right amount of whipping so that you don't overdry that product. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's really kind of a delicate balance. And that's one of the things that as we've scaled up has been sometimes difficult to, to scale uh, properly because you'll see some batches that maybe weren't fully purged and you'll see some that, you know, and so we've had to work that down and adjust our process a little bit so that we can, you know, consistently hit that, that zero PPM and, and still have a nice soft uh, supple product. Um, so that that's whipped concentrates. That's kind of one side of the house. Um, the other side of the house, which was something that started developing, you know, in like 2015, uh, I have some really old photos from, from some of the first crystallizations we ever did. Um, but basically what you're doing with a crystallized concentrate is you're leaving that, you know, again, that raw solution coming out of the extractor with a good amount of solvent in it, you're now putting that into a closed vessel. And what that does is it allows, uh, it creates a, a solution, which is a, you know, a, a chemical term for a, you know, um, a compound in something else, right? So in this case, it's terpenes mm -hmm. and cannabinoids in a butane solution. Um, and you could also do this with non-solvent with high terpene varieties. So a lot of this stuff applies to, to other extraction methods, but um, it's easiest to do with, with BHO, right? So um, what you're doing with this is you have a closed container um, with the right balance of solvent to compound. And what happens is the THCA naturally wants to be a crystal. And so it starts to form crystals. If you've ever made like rock candy as a kid, um, it's exactly the same process. You have a little bit of sugar on that rope, you dip it in there and then the crystals start to form. So yeah, <laughs> whenever I explain it to people, they're like, oh, I've done that. I, I understand how that works. And <laughs> yeah. So when you see those photos, like uh, a lot of our marketing materials are some of the photos that I've taken. And, and um, that's one of my favorite things to shoot is like inside the jars, the side of the jars, you can see the crystals forming. You see these little, you know, they're always different shapes and patterns. And you can, yeah. you can kind of see like uh, one of my favorite ones, it sort of looks like a doorway. And then you see like smaller and smaller doorways inside of it. And so it, it's, it's a really cool process. And it's frankly, like a little bit, it's like half science, half magic, right? When you, <laughs> when you kind of just appreciate it. But um, so what happens yeah. there is the THCA crashes out of the solution and starts to form crystals. And when it does that, it sort of expels the terpenes and the other compounds 
out into the rest of that solution. And so what you're left with is a big bed of crystals. Um, the size depends on a variety of things, um, but the same process can produce like a sugar, which is a small crystal or a diamond, which is a large crystal. A sauce is kind of somewhere in between. Um, and so depending on how clean that process is, you get bigger and bigger crystals and you get more and more separated terpene solution. Um, and then from there, all you're doing is basically just, you know, separating those things out, removing any residual solvent and then recombining them. Usually, um, some companies sell, you know, what I call like dry diamonds, uh, which are, you know, just the, the THCA crystals just kind of washed, washed of anything else. Um, and people like those for, you know, adding, adding potency to things. But for me, that's like, I, I like, why bother? <laughs> I, I, I yeah. I'm, I'm much more into, uh, you know, the high flavor aspect. So I, I tend to really appreciate the more homogenous sauces. Um, I, I like a balanced dab every time. Um, butter is my preferred texture, but that sort of applesauce texture would be my number two. Um, I love looking at diamonds, but for me, it's, it's a, a different consumption experience because you're, you're getting that chunk of THCA, you're kind of swapping it around in some terpenes. Are you getting the same amount of terpenes every time? Like not even close. Um, so for me, I like the consistency right. of those other textures. Gotcha. So that's what you mean by a balanced dab is uh is the idea that it's like the the full closer to the full what you consider to be the full product yeah it's i mean people say the term opposed to that yeah people say like full spectrum or whole plant or whatever i mean to me when you're doing too much of that separation and secondary um you know breaking apart and recombining i think you lose some of that authenticity so that's why i you know we, we really tend to focus on uh, it will make some diamonds occasionally, but, um, I, I think the bulk of the, the catalog is, is like a, sort of an apple saucy sauce texture and, and butter. Um, that's, that's where you're going to see most often. Cool. Yep. Cool. Um, so I feel like, so we broke down, uh, the different processes that are, that are used. Have we talked, we kind of talked about non-solvent. Do you have any other things like to say about non-solvent? Cause you were just talking about solvent uh concentrates and the different uh textures and stuff yeah um so you know like i mentioned i the the different textures can be achieved with non-solvent products um but it's a little bit harder so like when sure. when a rosin comes out it's kind of an oil texture it sort of looks like a shatter right it's it's clear um it'll sit in the bottom of a container you can see through it and read the paper right but it's um that stage only lasts for a very short time. So what a lot of people are doing, they'll either cold store it and kind of keep it in that sort of, you know, shatter kind of consistency. Um, but the second you start digging into that and, and, and messing with it, it, it starts going downhill and changing. Um, and you see that nucleation and that sugaring happening with the THCA trying to be a crystal. Um, so a lot of people have taken non-solvents and then started doing whipping. They're doing like jar cure. They're doing a, a variety of different processes to create basically what I've been talking about, like a, you know, homogenous sort of butter texture. Um, but also uh, people have been able to grow THCA crystals, er, not grow, it, it's a different process. They essentially refine it as part of the rosin process, um, you know, with different temperatures and different screen sizes, you're able to kind of get to a, an isolated THCA from those processes. Um, and so people are, are making sort of, you know, non-solvent diamonds, things like that. But for me, there's, too much of that secondary process that has to happen to get to those textures. For me, if I'm smoking non-solvent, I either want it fresh out of the machine or, you know, fresh out of the rosin press in that sort of shatter form, or I want it like a very concerted curated 
jar cured butter. Um, I think those are, those are the ways to consume solventless. I think all the other stuff, you kind of just see flavor degradation. It's never going to be as good as the other ones. Um, and the top of the mound, by the way, is fresh frozen, uh, dry sift <laughs> to me. I, I think that like, if I were to say what, you know, the most natural, like best expression of the plant is, um, I think maybe that's it because it's, I mean, the flavor is mind blowing. Um, and you get a little bit more of that traditional sort of hash experience. Um, for me, I, I think BHO is much more of, of, a, a you know, above the neck sort of effect. Like I don't, I don't get a lot of super, super strong body effects or like relaxation out of BHO a lot of the time. Um, whereas if I, you know, smoke like traditional, like bubble hash or rosin, sometimes I get like kind of a heavier experience. And I think that, that, you know, sort of full melt dry sift is, is kind of the best of both worlds. Cause it's, um, I, I mean, it's very rare. Like no, nobody really produces that for commercial, commercial use. But, um, if you, if you know a guy, that's, uh, <laughs> that's one of the best things to consume. Um, and uh, one thing we didn't touch on was shatter. Um, I know shatter's kind of gone the way of the dodo. Like you don't see a lot of it in the market these days. Um, but, but shatter, essentially you're taking that raw oil and you're just laying it very thinly on like a sheet of parchment or something that it won't stick to. Um, and then you're using a vacuum oven to just pull out uh, any of the residual butane um, or, or whatever solvent you use. Um, and, you know, that product, uh, that was actually the original live resin texture. Um, people struggled from the point that we did that. Everybody was struggling to try. They're like, what do we do with live resin? It's always sugaring up on us, whatever. Um, we, we had done selection and process to actually get it to be a stable live resin, uh, you know, shatter. Um, but it's, uh, you know, to scale that has been difficult. And I think live resin essentially killed shatter. Like, you don't, you don't really see shatter much anymore. If you see, um, if you see product that's made from dry material, it's, almost always wax or sauce these days because it's, it's just much easier to deal with. But, um, you know, I still have a soft spot in my heart for, uh, for shatter, especially like a live resin, like real sappy, just beautiful. Um, you know, it takes me right back to 2014 when everything was magic <laughs> in Colorado. <laughs> but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And speaking of which I want to talk to you about your the beginnings in Colorado and kind of how you got to where you were now um but but I want to finish this concentrate uh conversation I wanted to see because I had some I wanted to make sure to touch on the difference in complexions because I figured you'd be able to break that down oh yeah um we talked about solvent versus non-solvent um we talked about some of the different processes that are used um are there any other processes that are wor- worth mentioning? I mean, I think you said you use the closed loop system because it it's increased efficiency for the live resin process. I mean, it allows you to do it at scale. Um, is there any other processes I th- that you would want to mention that I guess maybe you don't use, but are, you know of that are in practice or? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and real quick on the closed loop system, like in the early, early days, there wasn't a lot of requirements. There wasn't a lot of regulation about how you actually make you know, BHO or, or most concentrate. It's like in the early Colorado days, all it was, was like, well, you know, you can, uh, have run some bubble bags in the back room of your grow and that's totally fine. And we won't ask another question about it like that. That's kind of where it came from. Um, and so in the early days, people, you know, 
were regulated doing open blasting. Like I, I was at a company that did that for several years on camera and the state watching us and we're out squatting in the back alley running tubes. Right. Um, so that, yeah. that was the very old days of the industry. Um, as soon as the closed loop systems came in, then that became a requirement. So, you know, for anybody listening, um, all of the BHO that you've consumed that was sold in a dispensary was made in a closed loop system um, in a safe environment, in a, you know, a class one division one, they call it, um, you know, environment, which means that, you know, all this air is exhausted, you know, many times per minute, all of that stuff where like, essentially, if something happened, the chance for an explosion or anything like that is, is super, super, super rare. Um, and so, you know, that was a lot of the initial hes- hesitation that people had towards BHO is they're like, oh, well, these people are blowing up apartment buildings. And you know, yeah, exactly. Then, and, and um, you know, that's, that's just not the case anymore. I mean, some people are still doing that, but I think rosin kind of saved that to a certain extent because it, it showed people that they can make really tasty dabs at home without doing any of that. And I think most people would rather not risk that. So you, you don't really see a lot of those, you know, those, those types of, of incidents anymore. Um, so, so yeah, you know, cl- closed loop is, is a huge deal and there's a variety of different systems. A lot of them now have, you know, really high level cooling and all of that again, because of live resin. I mean, most of these companies weren't thinking about any of this stuff until we started doing this process. Um, so, you know, most of these, ex- these extraction machine companies, had no idea. And they were just thinking about maximizing production and throughput. Um, we shifted the conversation to be a one of quality. So that's why you see everybody with these $90,000 chillers and all this crazy stuff on their system. Um, so, you know, aside, aside from that, I mean, that's a key piece of technology. Um, you know, the purging technologies with vacuum pumps and or vacuum ovens and, and all of that is, you know, taken from other branches of science. So none of that is, is super revolutionary. Um, one of the things that is sort of a hot button topic that I know, um, you know, operate are 100% doing in Illinois is what's called CRC, which is a color remediation cartridge. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's something that um, came into play, you know, probably a couple of years now, um, especially in California. What'd you say it was called color remediation what? cartridge? Um, and so, cartridge. yeah. And so what, the, what that is, is like in the extraction system, or sometimes as a secondary process, you would run the oil through a series of filtration mediums. And so that can be clay, that could be silica, that could be a a variety of different things. And what those do is they remove pigments, they remove um, sometimes odorous compounds that you don't want, um, but primarily they remove pigment and color. So you can take a, a golden oil or on the other side of the coin, a, a, a brown, terrible looking oil that was poor quality, run it through these filtration mediums and come out with something that's maybe completely clear, maybe just off white or maybe like gold and pretty. Um, and so, you know, there's some benefit in that, of course, because you're like, you are technically removing compounds that are not a medicinal compound, like are arguably, you know, the pigments and some of those things, like, you know, you could take that or leave that. But for me, that process removes other things that I feel like are really essential. And I don't think that a lot of the operators that are doing that can even really quantify what's being removed because I've seen A and B tests where it's like, oh, we ran this one normal and ran this one through full CRC. And you see only minor shifts in some terpenes. You don't see any, but you see a big uptick in potency because you're removing some of these other compounds that aren't tested for. The problem is that most cannabis labs don't test for a lot of the stuff that's in cannabis. So what other essential things are being stripped in that process, right? Because for me, CRC oil does not taste anywhere near as good as non-CRC oil. Um, 
So it's, you know, a lot of the reputation that it got is negative um, from California and Colorado of, oh, that's how everybody polishes their garbage, right? Like you just can have this absolutely horrible oil, you run it through this process and the end customer buying it is like, oh, this this is great color, this is fire, bro. And and it's just not, right? Um, on the other side, I think those processes can have some benefits in producing super, super, super refined products. Like for example, with, um, you know, the uh, uh, distillate vapes that we've, that we've been making, um, when you run a, a base oil, especially made from like dried cured material, if you're not really focused on the terpenes, you run it through those processes and you end up with something that is, you know, 95 plus percent THC that you can then use to formulate into vape pens or whatever. And you, and you do have a more pure base. Um, and there's also, you could do a little bit of CRC filtration and, you know, get to a better color consistently, get to a more repeatable color without really stripping out a lot of those, um, those flavor compounds. So it's something that I think people need to use judiciously if they're going to use it. Um, but for me personally, I'm, I'm much more a fan of super, super cold extraction which again is very selective. Um, you know, the coldest, best extractions we've ever done have always been beautiful, right? We've never done a perfect extraction and been like, why is it dark? I mean, it, it just doesn't happen. So I think the the process and the rigor of making sure that everything's good eliminates the need for CRC. And if you have good plant material, you, you shouldn't need CRC generally. Um, but some people were doing it like in California, yeah. they were doing it as like, oh, this is our Blanc line or this is our, you know, clear line or whatever. And, and it's more just a marketing gimmick. I don't think. And I think invariably the market decided that they don't like those products as much because most of those have gone away now and people are just back to natural color. Interesting. Yeah. I just have never understood it because sometimes people will post on like Reddit or social media and they'll, they'll you know, they'll be like really happy of what they, with what they have. And then somebody else will be like, Oh dude, that's some freaking CRC garbage. Yep. And I'm always like, what, it, what does that even mean? And how can you tell from looking at a picture? Yeah. And, and that's, can you tell from looking at a picture? Uh, pretty much. I mean, I, if something more or less, yeah, if something is unnaturally and, and I, that's a loaded term, right. But if something is so clear, so white, like if I see a white butter i'm like that's yeah. crc period. i've seen white that's yeah. it's weird yeah yeah that, that's crc 100 yeah um and and for me it's always dry and crumbly like the the real problem that i had with it is that you know i love a supple butter right if you whip it right and you do the right thing it's slicey it sticks to the dabber it's like the most pleasurable consumption experience for me personally when i have a crc butter it's grainy. It's got tiny THCA crystals in it. Um, it. And part of that is because you've refined out some of these things that keep it supple. Um, and, and so, you know, for, for me, I don't like that grainy CRC butter. I, I absolutely hate it. And when I, when I buy something, I, I'm out here in California, um, when I buy something from the dispensary and it's sold to me as butter, I, I want the shine, like it should shine, like good butter should shine in the light. You should see like visible terpenes in it. Um, and this stuff never, never, ever, ever does. And I'm always, I'm always pissed off when that happens. <laughs> so, um, Interesting. Yeah. So just one last question about CRC that I admit it's like, it's a weird question because I think, you know, uh, using cannabis, using any, uh, drug, like uh, we're, nobody's saying that that's healthy. Right. Yeah. Um, but I want to just be clear because it seems like some people like 
throw around CRC like it's a really bad thing. Like, is there anything that people should be like concerned about? Like, because it's like, like you said, it's sold on the shelves. So, I mean, it's a, it's still an okay product. It just doesn't taste as good and stuff like that. Um, that. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I mean, you know, technically, if you're saying, if you're talking, and again, there's there's a ton of questions about like what vaporizing you know, a bunch of yeah, mercine right, and a vape right. cart. I mean, there's no studies, right? We don't know what the effects of a lot sure. of these things are. So, you know, as, as a company, we kind of have to look at best practices and see what makes the most sense. Um, to answer your question about CRC, um, you know, they're, they're, you're essentially adding other steps to the process. So with any, any add additional steps, things can go wrong, right? If, if somebody doesn't do the process mm. right, if they don't have the right secondary filters, yeah, maybe you can end up with little bits of silica in the final product. And it, whether that would hurt you or not, we don't really know, right? But that that's kind of the thing. For, for me, it's about eliminating the chances for those variables to come into play in the first place and, and reducing your risk of any of that stuff happening. Um, but as a product in a base level, if all those things are done right and everything's filtered correctly, um, you might be actually getting a, a quote unquote safer product using CRC because you're removing some of these other compounds like pigments and things like that, that we don't necessarily know are good or bad to smoke, right? You're getting more pure cannabinoids, uh, more sort of purified terpenes in that final product. And, and that's shown in lab results, right? Like I mentioned, if you do an A and B for a non-CRC and a CRC, the CRC will be a higher potency. And sometimes it will show higher terpenes, but that's not additional content for any of those things. That's removal of other stuff that's in the mix. So like if you get a test result, that's 85% THC and 5% cannabinoids, you're like, okay, that accounts for 90% of what this product is. What's the other 10% labs don't test for it. It could be plant waxes. It could be like a whole variety of things, but that 10% is sort of unknown. When you run a CRC, you're taking some of that out and you're getting more to like, oh, we know what 95% is or eight, 98% of it is. Um, so from a scientific perspective, if I was making an ultra refined cannabinoid product that is laser targeted at doing some specific thing. Yeah. Maybe I would use CRC, you know, but it's, uh, for, for what I like as a consumer and, and as a, a live resin person, especially like it's, it's not what I want. So, um, yeah. we, we use, we use it very, very, very sparingly. Um, and primarily for, like I said, for, for distillation. Um, so, you know, we, we could get to a higher purity, better quality distillate. Um, we, we don't use it for, uh, for adaptable concentrates. Okay. Um, and I got, I got another question about concentrates before we go peel yeah. the page back and talk about how you got into the industry. Um, this one is admittedly for some reason in this state, and I think it has to do with pricing. I really do. I think it has to do with the fact that frankly, we have some of the, uh, some of the highest prices I think in the nation. And that's, that's including medical prices. Like our medical prices are still higher than a lot of adult use prices in other Absolutely. states. And that's with those adult use of taxes, taxes applied, um, my next question is, like I say, admittedly uh, somewhat controversial in the state of Illinois. Can you tell me about Headspace? Um, you know, tell me about it. What is Headspace? Is it legit is really the question because a lot of people are saying that it's not legit. I personally think it is and I can give my reasons, but I just want to hear it from you. 
Um, what is Headspace? What's what's the deal? Yeah, so so when people talk about Headspace, I mean, as a scientific concept, it's basically just the amount of empty space in any vessel, right? So like on when when we talk about the diamond jars, and and you're you know you have that solution sitting in there in a in a in a jar, you you want some Headspace, right? Like you you need some room to sit in there to do those processes. Um, for what you're talking about specifically is is a, a vape issue. Yeah, exactly. Where people buy a cart and they're like, why does this look half empty? Um, well, what's going on here? Am I getting ripped off? Like whatever. Um, and I, I guess at, at a bird's eye view, um, you know, different operators use different methods to weigh out or volumetrically measure what they're distributing um, into those vape carts. So, you know, like, like we generally use a volumetric based uh, model um, because weight, you know, different density oils will weigh different. And so if you're just putting it on a scale and squirting in 0.5, you, you are going to see pretty big variations between batches. So, so we, we use, we, we use, um, you know, uh, assisted machines and fillers and things like that, that, that do a volumetric thing. So we're looking at milliliters, not at grams. Right. Um, so that, that's, that's part of it. I can speak to what, what we do there. Um, but in terms of the issue in general, like different cartridge manufacturers actually recommend different amounts of headspace. Um, they build their cartridges with a little bit of wiggle room. Um, like for example, you know, standard sort of uh, standard hardware cartridges can hold up to maybe 0.7 or 0.75 grams, uh, you know, for a half gram cart. Um, but in practice, you shouldn't fill it up that high, right? It, it, it can de decrease function. There's a lot of issues with that. Um, so, and, and then the second thing is a lot of the, this hardware has like a wicking system or, or an inner chamber that once you do the filling and the customer actually starts using it, a lot of the oil will now be invisible essentially because it'll be inside of the hardware. So, um, you know, depending on the hardware that they use, depending on the manufacturer, you may see certain brands that seem higher or lower. Um, if they're doing their, their processes and their, their filling correctly, there shouldn't actually be more or less oil in those cartridges. And, and I personally don't think there is because as an operator, we're tested um, not only for, you know, how much THC is in this, is it safe? Is there heavy metals? Is there, you know, all of that stuff. Um, they also test for consistency in amount of product that we send. So uh, if, a, if a lab notices that we send in a batch of half gram dabs and one of them is a full gram, they'll fail it, right? So it's there's an acceptable margin of error for these things. And so I think the, the concern is probably overblown. Um, I think the majority of operators use volumetric filling and you are getting the 0.5 mil that you would want in a half gram cartridge. So, um, you know, half gram, 0.5 milliliter. That's basically the same thing. It's, it's exactly the same thing with water, but we're not dealing with water here. So that's, that's what I mean. When there's a little bit of variation, people that are just using grams to weigh it, you're, you're not accurate there. So, um, the vast majority of, of operators are not doing that anymore. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's something that's probably a little overblown. Um, I think also different hardware and different battery settings will 100% suck through your oil way faster or slower. So if you're like, oh, I only got yeah. 30 hits out of this, what's going on? Like, you know, examine your settings and think if, if you had it exactly the same as before. Um, and also some oils do burn faster. If there's, if there's more terpenes in an oil, that's essentially more volatile, right? Terpenes are more volatile than mm -hmm. cannabinoids. So a high terpene oil will go away faster than like a distillate with a little bit of botanical terpenes or something like that. So um, th there's a lot of nuance in like, the vape consumption experience <laughs> for sure. Sure. 
See, I always thought that the, the, and I, I mean, I'm admittedly, I have not in the industry at all. I, I always tell people I just, uh, I, I just bought a microphone. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, I, I don't, I'm not in the industry. I've never worked in the industry. Um, but I always thought that it was filled up by weight and that maybe differences between terpene content or, or like you say, the density of a strain would cause it to appear differently. Um, but you're saying that you, you and most people fill it up volumetrically. So that's, I didn't know that. Yeah, no. And, and, and there are definitely some people that still are putting them on a scale and weighing them. But I, I think like most, most like companies that really think about what they're doing or not doing that anymore, because you, you do see that variation. Yeah. I mean, uh, even just with, uh, you know, with dabble concentrate, sometimes, um, you know, people will get a gram and they're like, oh, this gram's short. Like it doesn't look as big as the other one. Uh, look at the terpene content. Terpenes are heavy and they make a dense concentrate. Mm. So like a really wet, shiny butter, like I like is going to look way smaller than a dry crumble. Like you'll have a whole bottom of the container loaded up with crumble and you'll have like a little tiny dot of, of the other one. Those are the same weight. <laughs> so there's some of that too. I think, you know, pe people don't necessarily know what affects something like weight. Yeah. So I was, you know, I had always just, uh, not seen it as I, because, okay, let me just put it this way. Whenever it's a contentious issue and whenever people talk about it, they're always like, oh, they're just trying to screw us over by not yeah. giving us the oil. But when I look at like C-Cell even made a statement about it, they said it's a memo that mm -hmm. was made by their marketing department on uh, in 2019. Why isn't my cartridge full? And, um, they basically describe what you were saying, which is that, um, uh, for example, if you purchase a cart with one gram of oil, the actual capacity of the cart itself is around 1.25 grams. Yep. A completely full reservoir may risk the uh, may increase the risk of oil leakage. Um, yep. So yeah, I just. I always just looked at it because like the, the manufacturer themselves, which like I've bought my own carts and I've filled up my own oil and I've noticed that like you fill it up at night and then you wake up the next morning and it is lower because it's absorbed into the, uh, wick mm -hmm. did you say yeah yeah most yeah. most uh most cartridges including like the most common ones like c-cell and, and avd they, they do have a uh an or usually it's an organic uh, cotton wick sort of inside which is where the you know the oil kind of actually comes through onto the heating element um so so that that needs to be saturated as part of the process so when you're filling you have the caps on it um, so that you fill it and not a lot of it actually ends up in there. The second that somebody uses that and breaks that sort of vacuum seal on the cartridge, that's when you really start to see that soaking in. So sometimes mm. you can, uh, like when you're at home filling, that's kind of a, a different thing. Um, the way that we get the cartridges sent to us, they have, you know, caps on both ends. Um, when you, uh, like the ones that we use are like sort of a press on, uh, with, you know, like an Arbor press or a, a piece of hardware to do that. Yeah. When you actually push that in, it creates creates a slight vacuum in there so that the oil doesn't flow into those other areas of the cartridge. Um, and so not everybody uses those things. Some people still are doing screw tops. Um, and so you might see some variation there where a company that does press-ons looks more full than the company that does screw tops. Um, the same amount of oil should be in the cartridge regardless. So I think as you start to get more familiar with, with different companies, you can start to see and maybe parse out where some of these differences are coming from. Um, 
And, and also, like I said, look at terpene percentages in the oil and all that stuff. If you're like, why is this brand going away so much faster than this other one? It's probably because they have more terpenes. If that's good or bad for you, I don't gotcha. know. Some people want, want, you know, their cart to last them for two weeks and X number of hits and other people want the best experience every time that they hit it. Right. So it's apples and oranges. Very cool. Well, um, like I said, I wanted to peel back the, thank you for answering that question and taking on that topic. Cause, uh, it's cool. I've never really gotten an official answer uh, from anybody that's operating in the state. Like, I, and I've also never really asked anybody. So it was it was nice. I figured it was in your wheelhouse to answer since you've been involved in so many uh, markets in this industry. Uh, you mentioned, you know, that that we that you you're cool with home grow, like that you you started as a home grower, um, that you support home grow. And one of the other things you mentioned actually just like a few minutes ago or that like people that purchase cannabis a lot, like you and I, you, you said, um, you know, that we're the people that purchase cannabis a lot. Honestly, like nowadays I, I home grow, uh, for most of those things. And, and, mm. uh, the dispensary is oftentimes just a supplement, uh, to, to what I'm not able to produce at home. For example, you know, some of these concentrate products. I mean, I'm looking to get a rosin press, like you say that that's made it, that's really watered down the process, if you will, for, for the home grower, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, do you still home grow? Do you still, do you still support home grow? If I can ask, does acreage support home grow? Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't mean to make you a spokesperson of acreage, but you are <laughs> here representing acreage. So I just wanted to ask, um, sorry, yeah, no, I threw um, a few questions at you. But yeah, no, no that, that's fine. Um, I, I don't, I don't currently home grow. I actually haven't grown at home for quite a while because I, you know, like, I, I don't know, I, I, I got a little kid at home and all that. And I, and I've been living in, you know, apartments and places like that largely where you can't do a lot of that. And I think, you know, your, your situation, like you said, if you, if you're able to kind of supply yourself mostly with your home grow and then occasionally go to the dispensary, like, I, you know, that's, that's the, that's the best scenario. I think for those that are able to do that, um, I think invariably what happens though, is that a lot of people are like, Oh, I'll try growing at home. And then maybe they get to harvest and everything's good. Maybe they don't, um, maybe they're happy with their product. Maybe they aren't. Um, I think the dispensary really provides, you know, a higher level of, of sort of consistency and you kind of know what you're getting at the end of that journey. Um, whereas, you know, I've had plenty of people that started a home grow and they ended up spending a couple thousand dollars on equipment and stuff. And then they, they literally get nothing but a bunch of spider mites and issues by the end. Right. So, so I, I think, I think that there's a balance there. Um, at, you know, as a company acreage definitely supports home grow, um, you know, in the very early days, uh, there were some, you know, some conversations that we didn't, um, be based on like industry groups that we had joined and some things like that. Um, but I, I think we've, we, we've been pretty clear about our support, uh, for home grow, both from like a, you know, legislator lobbying sort of side of the house, trying to, you know, make sure that that's a part of things and trying, you know, certainly not, if it was a part, certainly not being like, well, we don't think you should do that. Um, so I, I think we've, you know, we've not changed our tune, but we've clarified um, our position there. And I mean, really the whole thing is like, if more people can engage with this plant, that's better for us. Right. Um, I, yeah. I don't think that the majority of people that grow at home 
fully supply themselves at all. Um, and so the, the notion that home grow versus dispensary, like, I don't think it's a versus, like you said, it's a supplement. Um, home grow can supplement somebody who's primarily a dispensary customer or dispensary can submit or it can supplement um, somebody who's primarily a home grower. And so I, I think we should be working together and we should be, you know, trying to, again, push the conversation forward. And, um, you know, I think home growers also, have a level of passion for the industry just to even take that leap. I think a lot of the people who really succeed in the industry end up being home growers and people who, who really care about the plant and surround themselves with it. Um, so whether you're a trimmer or a bud tender or a, a head extractor, or you're running a facility, right? I think that connection with the plant every day is super, super important. Awesome. And I just want to make a quick, quick clarification that I think I know the answer. I would hope the answer is yes, but I, I really should clarify it. Um, home grow for all legal consumers, right? Not just like, cause some people are like only medical and that kind of pisses me off because like oftentimes medical patients can't even grow if they wanted to, cause they've got a medical condition. So it's like, anyways, though, the question, yeah, for all, yeah. for all legal consumers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, you know, in a, if you're lucky enough to live in a place where you can like put some seeds or some clones out in a container in your backyard and give them some water and they're, they're in line with your tomatoes and your cucumbers and everything else like that, that's the scenario that we're really trying to get to because cannabis never should have been made illegal. It never should have been put inside under artificial lighting. It never should have had to do any of those things. If we wanted to take it inside to make the absolute best product that we can, then sure. But I mean, it, it, it was a necessity, right? And so I think what we're seeing over you know, the spread of legalization and the spread of home grow being allowed, uh, especially like you said, you know, sort of adult use home grow where anybody over a certain age can do it. Um, I think it's bringing cannabis back to where it should be, which is alongside every other plant that people can freely grow. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would 100% support that um, as opposed to just medical patients. And I think what we're seeing in general is that the sort of medical versus adult use distinction is falling away anyway. Um, you know, there are of course, you know, quote unquote, like true medical patients that are like, I have cancer and this is the one thing that helps me through life. Um, but I think what we're finding, and, and this is with studies we've done with anything, anecdotally, all of it, is that people that are using for adult use or recreational reasons invariably are also using for a lot of medical reasons, whether it just makes them feel better in some nebulous way and they can't even put their finger on it, or it helps with anxiety, or it helps their stomach feel better in the morning, or it helps them sleep. I mean, there's, there's a million things like that where people don't consider themselves a medical user. They just go to the dispensary and they buy stuff that they like. But when you really unpack what that is, I mean, I, I think all use is medical in some way. Um, and again, even if it's like, I want to smoke this joint to have fun with my friends at a party, like you're, you're using an aid to get to a goal, right? Isn't that kind of what medicine is? Isn't that kind of what wellness is? Like, I, I just, I think yeah. that distinction is falling away. And I think as you, you know, even if you look at like market numbers, like if we look at BDSA and all these other outlets that publish, you know, large scale market looks like there are a, a fairly consistent group of medical customers that stay kind of stagnant in all of these markets. The, the overall market goes up on a huge curve around them. Right. And that's not to say they're being left behind. I think they are in some States um, with like non-compassionate pricing uh, taxes being too high, all of that. Um, I think there's, there's ways that we can address 
you know, true medical needs better. And, and also when I say true medical, I mean, low income people, I mean, everything, anybody who's using cannabis that can't afford it. Um, that's a problem that the industry needs to address, but it, I don't think it needs to be addressed in a purely medical sense. I think it needs to be addressed more in a compassionate access sense. Well said, well said. So yeah, right. I wanted to just thank you again for being willing to sit down and, and spend so much time and go through as much as we did today. I'd love to have you back on sometime in the future because I frankly had a lot of fun talking with you. And uh, you got anything else that you want to say before you go, maybe plug your social media or anything else? Um, sure. Yeah. I'm uh, on, on social media. I'm uh, Superflux um, is at at we are super flux on basically everything. Um, we, we've been putting a, a good amount of content on Instagram and, um, you know, of course, check out the website and stuff to, you know, find the locations where you can purchase. Um, and, you know, stay tuned. We'll, we'll be engaging with, you know, continuing to engage with the Reddit community um, and, and with the Illinois, uh, you know, patient community and, and customer community at large. So, um, you know, definitely, you know, reach out to me if, if you have any questions um, and, you know, just, expect, expect a lot of good things We're we're really trying to, you know, uh, deliver quality and, and we're aware of the pricing issue with Illinois in general, that everything is just very expensive there compared to the rest of the country. Um, so I, I think, you know, as, as a company, we're trying to do our part to uh, change some of that stuff as well going forward. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're still in launch phase, but we're, we're building up. And um, I think, you know, 2022, you'll, you'll see a lot of, a lot of great stuff from Superflux and, um, uh, both in Illinois and also in, in other states. So, Awesome. Well, I'll throw those social media handles in the podcast description as always, folks. Rye, uh, I don't believe you mentioned the website. Did you say the website? It's just uh, superflux.com. Superflux.com. It's going to be in the podcast description. Rye Richard, that's how you say your name, right? I want to make it sure. Yes, it's Richard. Cool. Um, Thank you so much for coming on to the Chillinois podcast. And uh, once again, you know, we'll, we'll sit down sometime in the future uh, to maybe even enjoy some uh, cannabis together. So. Absolutely. Uh, since someday soon I'll be out in Illinois, I'll, I'll definitely hit you up. Cool. We'll make it happen. All right, folks. I hope you found some value in this episode. As always, feel free to reach out. You can just go to chillinoisnet slash contact and fill out our contact form. Uh, we'll have Rye and uh, maybe even others from the Superflux team on in the future. But until then, we'll see you next time.